rest of us, we're going to be continuing in this message, this message series called The Great Escape. The Great Escape. This is our walk through the book of Exodus. We are now on our 46th message in the book of Exodus. We're up at Exodus 25. Last week in our message, uh, which was titled A Promise of Obedience, we heard the Israelites vow to honor God two times with their mouths, right? They swore not only to be obedient, but they also vowed to be faithful to God at the same time. And looking at that commitment, we recognize how much easier it is to make a commitment than it is to fulfill a commitment. And we think about how that affects us. Many times we say things, but we don't necessarily, we have a hard time with the follow through. This morning, we're going to be looking, going with Moses uh, as he's gone back up into the cloud onto the mountain to speak to God. And uh, here he's going to give him uh, a bit of a communion with humanity. And it will be an opportunity for God to share his desires uh, to restore fellowship with man and also an opportunity for create a place on earth where man can fellowship with God. And today's message is called A Picture of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity, God, to bring your word. And Lord, you know that I have prayed and I have searched, uh, Lord, uh, my heart. And God, I pray that you have uh, spoken to me, and I know that you have. And Lord, I pray now that you will speak through me, that the words that I share may not be the ones that I would choose, but Lord, the very ones that you would direct me to. Father, that we would hear truth from the word of God. Help it, Lord, not only be something that we hear, as being hearers of the word, but Lord, help us to absorb it and become doers of the word that we might be changed, God. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be better today than we walked in today, Lord, we, as we leave. God, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Exodus 25, verses 1 through 22 today, 1 through 22. Exodus 25, verse number 1, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it, willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. Okay, notice this is a very specific offering, okay? This is specifically God. It's not for the elders to distribute. It's not for Moses to redistribute. This is specifically for God. The Lord is working to develop a spirit of giving within the people, right? They've not accustomed to this, right? God's desire is to have them mimic himself, and God is the ultimate giver, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? So we see this image of God giving and giving and giving again, right? So we see part of the process here is going to be creating the dwelling place. We're going to find that. But also the other part is taking them, moving them from takers to givers, right? Now, how many people know there are some people in life that are takers, yeah. right? And there are other people that are givers, oh my goodness. If you're a giver and you know a lot of takers, that's going to be a pretty draining thing, right? But there are some folks that just don't have that, that natural tendency. What's happened with these Israelites is they've come out of an environment where they've been very, very dependent. And we're going to see this instance where God's trying to change them, change them or train them out of that, mind, that mindset. And I want us to look a little bit of an idea. We're going to look back at their history a little bit and kind of look at where they are come from. Okay? Back in Exodus 3, the Israelite people cried for deliverance from Egypt. And guess what happened? God brought deliverance through the plagues, and through Moses. Exodus 14, they cried for rescue from Pharaoh's army. And guess what God did? He parted the Red Sea. Exodus 15, they cried for drinkable water. And guess what God did? Gave them pure water. Exodus 16, they cried for food. Guess what God did? Provides manna and quail. Exodus 17, they cry for water in the desert. God draws water from the rock. Exodus 18 through 24, actually Exodus 17, says they fight actually with, uh, they fight for their lives against Amalek. And guess what? God brings the victory. Again, in Exodus 18 through 24, they cry for civil justice. They lined up to get all these, they lined up, remember they wanted Moses to judge them? And what happens is God gives them the law. 
So every time there's been a need that they've had, they've simply asked and God has provided. So we see this pattern with them that they've grown accustomed to where they have a need, God makes provision. And we can see it very much like a parent and a child relationship, right? If we think about this, right? In the beginning, what happens? The baby cries, and what does the parent do? Provides, right? There's provision made there because the child can't provide for themselves. And if we look at this, we can also see a parallel in the spiritual life, right? As in the Bible says in 1 Peter 2, 2, it says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. When we consider, spiritually speaking, we're newborn babes when we get saved. When you first get saved, guess what? You don't know how to eat the word of God. You don't know how to eat. You don't know how to talk to God because you don't know how to pray. You don't know how to walk with God. So the very things, same thing that we see mimicked in the reality of a human being, we can actually see in the spiritual world, God gives these pictures to help us understand and relate to because guess what? We're visual people. The Old Testament, guess what it is? It's a picture book, a picture book. And every principle that you see taught in the New Testament, you're always going to be able to find a picture of it in the Old Testament. And God works that way to help us to understand his word. So he mimics also in creation at the same time. So the baby desires the milk. They don't have the knowledge or the ability to gain it for themselves. So then it must be provided for them. How does a baby communicate? They cry, right? They know nothing else but to cry. Notice this, Exodus 3, verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Right? They cry because they have a need. And God hears their cry and he cares and he provides. Then what happens? They're going to move out of the baby stage. The goal is to help them to grow, right? To grow. As they grow, they're going to learn how to take care of themselves a little bit. And also, they learn how to contribute. They, tra- they learn how to put back in to their family. Spiritually speaking, the Bible calls them little children. 1 John 3:18 says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth, right? What we see through these offerings is God's now starting to shift a little bit of responsibility onto the people. He's been taking the burden the entire time. And what's happening is he's developing them. He's helping them to grow in their walk. This is just like us as parents, right? What do we do with our kids? As they start to get a little bit older, we start to shift some responsibility onto them, right? You are going to feed the dog. That's your job. You're going to feed the dog. You're going to take out the trash. You're going to clean up your room, right? We give them little tasks, simple things. We don't say, look, honey, you're going to handle the banking for the home. You're going to balance the checkbook and make sure things are taken care of. Make sure the power bill is paid on time. You don't give that to a five-year-old, but you might say, hey, can you take the trash out? Can you empty the trash in your room? You give them this little teeny step, right? And this simple development tool is used by the Lord in Scripture time and time again. It works in the physical world, but it also works in the spiritual world. Same thing. Start taking on these little responsibilities, this step-by-step process. We saw God do it with Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Moses. You watch it through the Bible, little step-by-step progressions. They learn a little bit more, and they start to take a little bit more responsibility. And all the while, guess what? The Father is there to support them. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear new, for thou art with me. God is this consistent companion. So as these children are learning this chore, mom and dad, the first few times, might be there watching them go to the trash can. Oh, boy, what are they going to do? Oh, boy, right? They can't get the lid up, or they put it halfway in, they crush the thing, and it fills all over the floor, whatever. But the parents there, and if they mess it up, guess what they do? They help them, right? That's the thing with God. He's there as a companion with us. He walks with us and he helps us to do better. His goal, his goal is to watch us grow. 
Now, if it's not done in the physical world and if it's not done in the spiritual world, guess what we're doing? We're setting up our children for failure, right? We need to train them. We need to help them to grow. Consider this. If you have a child who is never disciplined as a child, never disciplined, they do something wrong, there's no consequence. They pitch a fit, no problem. They get exactly what they want. As that person becomes an adult and you have to work with them, how joyous is that for us? Right? Or you see somebody who's at the line and at fast food, and for some reason their order's messed up, and they have a fit. You're like, what in the world? Who reacts that way? You go on YouTube, there's a bazillion videos. I don't know why I keep bringing that up, but I've seen some videos of some crazy people, <laughs> and I watch their reactions. I'm like, what in the world? Who does that? Who reacts that? But if you're not taught the parameters of society, and you're integrated into society, guess what? Society's not going to bend to you. Right? You're accustomed to do something wrong and having no consequences. When you go out and do something wrong, the police don't go, oh, well, you weren't, you weren't raised that way. Sorry, you're good. Do what you want. No. You go in cuffs just like everybody else. So society's not going to bend, and we have to train our children and give them an opportunity. Good parenting. Guess what? A good parent, a loving parent, they prepare their kids to face the world. And that's what God's doing with the Israelites. He's trying to prepare them for what's coming next. And why do you think God gave them the law before he started asking things of them? Because standards of behavior must be established first, then it will be through participation and responsibility that these habits and these patterns can be established in someone's life. He gives them parameters, then he helps them fulfill them. We are witnessing God developing the Israelites. Then notice in that, in that part of that verse, in verse 2, it's a qualifier in there. It says that they who uh, offer it, they must offer it willingly, right? Because if they don't offer it willingly, it says it won't be accepted. They'll accept it from those that give it Willingly, we are witnessing this development in them. So first of all, he's about teaching them to give to God. And secondly, it's about developing them in their heart of giving. That willingness, it says, with his, willingly with his heart. The exact same sentiment, you'll find it, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. He says, every man, according as he has purpose in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver, someone who gives with the right heart. That's what God's looking for, not necessarily what he's going to get, but it's the heart that he's trying to develop in them. So the Lord is getting ready to ask them for very specific things, but it's, about, it's not about the individual items as much as he's concerned about the heart of the giver. Acceptable gifts are those that are given gladly and willingly, right? And we think about us. What are the gifts that we bring? What do we bring to God? Our time, maybe. We give, dedicate some time. Maybe our, our talents, you have a skill or an ability, our treasures, what God's provided for us. We think about what we're giving, but ultimately, God's not so concerned about the things as he is the, the heart, right? He's trying to develop us to be givers, heart of giving, the heart of God. God does what he does, motivated and driven by love, right? So when we're giving and we're giving with the wrong heart, we're not giving as God would give. We're supposed to mimic his behavior, his birth, for God so loved the world that he gave. So love was the prerequisite for the giving. And what happens with us, we give out of necessity. We give because we're supposed to. We give because we feel, like we feel guilty if we don't. That's the wrong heart. God's saying, look, if you really love me, you won't have a problem giving. The simple development tool is used by the Lord again and again and again. Now, if we look here in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, it says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, 
there will your heart, your heart be also. Right? If God has our hearts, then there are no limits to what he'd expect from us. Man, when God lays it on our heart, we just, we're ready to do it. We're ready to give. We're not going to find qualifications or reasons not to. We're going to look for reasons, or we're going to look for opportunities to. A person with a heavenly perspective gives joyfully to the Lord in gratitude and love. So now we move to the actual offering, what he's going to ask of them, okay? Verse 3 says, And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and badger skins and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. So the Lord has already proven time and again in the short time that he's been with these Israelites, he's shown them that he can provide, right? So we know that God could get those things if he wanted to. That's not the issue, right? God's developing them, remember? Now it's time for us to look back. It's time for the people now to give back in gratitude to him. But we've got to realize, if we remember back in our study, we were in the book of Exodus. Why would they have these things? How would they have these things to give them back to God? Exodus 3, verse 21 through 22. This is back whenever Jesus is, or when Moses is on the mountain. He's talking to the burning bush, and God's preparing him, going to tell him what's going to happen. He's speaking into the future. God says this, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go empty. For every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of her that sojourneth in her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. You're going to get great gain from the Egyptians when you leave. Now we go all the way up to Exodus number 12, and guess what? This is when it's actually happening. They're leaving, the, they're leaving Egypt, and Egypt is a picture of the world, right? There's a picture there. The Israelites are a picture of the individual believer. Moses is a picture of Christ. The devil is pictured in Pharaoh, and Egypt itself is a picture of the world and a picture of sin. Exodus 12, 35 and 36, when they're leaving. And the children of Israel did according to the words of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver, jewels of gold, and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. The very thing God said was going to happen, happens. So now they have all of these supplies. And at the time, they're going, why do we need all this? Why do we need gold and silver and all this stuff when they leave? God was preparing them because they knew he was going to ask of them. Isn't it interesting? So the very things that God is asking them to willingly to contribute are the very things that he provided in the first place. He put them in their hands, and he's simply asking for a portion in return. John 1, verses 1 through C says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So every single thing on this planet, the planet itself and everything in it and on it, was created by God. So guess what? Not only did he create it, but it's his in the first place. And now what happens is he provides. He provides to us. And how amazing that we like two-year-olds get what we get. I work hard. I got my money. And we like mine, 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 mine. We hold on to it. We don't want to give it up because you don't understand this is mine. But in reality, it's all God's. He provides to us. We've been blessed in so many ways and so many times we're ungrateful, right? Incredibly, even though we are, <laughs> we could be ungrateful and selfish, with what he's given us, the Lord displays his remarkable long-suffering and asks only for a small portion in return, right? We think about what tithing is. People, some people don't understand what tithing is. Tithing is like this. If let's say I had $10 and I came to you and I said, look, would you give me change for $10? Would you give me, but I tell you what, all I really need is just a dollar. So if I give you this $10, would you just give me back a dollar? Is that cool? 
And they're like, yeah. So if that person takes that $10 and they have the 10 ones, and instead of giving you that $1, they just go ahead and pocket it. What are they? They're a thief. They're stealing, right? You ask for that little bit. God bless you. He asked for that little bit in return. That's a picture of this. God has made provision for everything that we have. And he says, look, give back to me. Give back to me what I ask of you and be faithful with it. Learning to be a cheerful giver is a part of our development as we see through this picture in the Old Testament. That's what God's trying to teach them. Because remember, he says, those that give with a willing heart. It's not just a matter of those that are obedient. It's the ones that have a willing heart. And now let's look at the purpose of the offering. Verse number eight. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Verse nine, according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle. Now the word tabernacle, this is the very first time you're going to see the word tabernacle show up in the Bible. Okay? It's going to show up 139 times in the Old Testament, but this is the very first time you're going to see it. And the word tabernacle means dwell with. Okay? So it can be a noun. It can also be a verb. Right? You can tabernacle with someone. You'll see it in the scriptures sometimes like that. But what I want us to pay attention to is the word pattern we see in there. It says, after the pattern of the tabernacle. Okay? Now, check this out. Hebrews 8.2 says this, A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Okay, so it's saying that the one they're getting ready to build is not the real one. They're not building the real deal. Hebrews 8.5 says this, Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. He's saying, look, this is pointing to something else. And Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for seeth, he says, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shown thee in the mountain. So God says, look, what I need you to do is I want you to make an earthly version of the true tabernacle that already exists. I want to model on earth. This is like an architect's model, right? So we said, look, here's a representation of what is already eternal and exists as we speak. And I want you to be able to see that here on earth. And notice here it says this, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Remember, right? When Moses was back up on the mountain, we remember this back in, in Exodus 24, last chapter, in the last, last message. What happened was God said, I want you to come up on the mountain. And before anything else, he said, I want you to come up and be there. Just be there. And Moses is called up, but it's the most important thing before anything else, before receiving anything that he comes up, before any of the jobs, anything else, God says, come up and be there. And what we find is God's desire is fellowship with mankind. That's what we were created for. We were created for this beautiful fellowship. And now what we see through this thing, he says he wants a tabernacle where he can dwell with us. He wants to be with humanity. From the very beginning, the Lord has sought fellowship with humanity, and it was because of sin that that fellowship was broken. And from then on, guess what? God's been working to restore the fellowship with us, right? Even going so far as giving himself as the ultimate, the ultimate price to actually form that restoration, finally let it come to pass. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Amazingly, amazingly, sinful, undeserving, right? Unfaithful. That's the Bible. I mean, we can look at ourselves. We know we're, the Israelites are a picture of us individually, and we look at them. The Bible calls them a stiff-necked people, meaning they are stubborn by nature. They're self-fulfilling, their desire to fill self. You and I struggle with the same issues. Every day we wake up in the morning, what do I want? What do I want to eat? What do I want to do this? What am I? It's I, me, 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 I, I, I. 
Not what would God have me to do, but what do I want? And so we look at this aspect of who we are and we're righteous. The fact that God can see us righteous is unbelievable. Not because we can become righteous, but because the blood of his son has been applied to our sin. All it takes on our end is a willingness to trust in his sacrifice and receive God's incredible gift by faith, right? And then in an instant, literally in a moment of faith, we go from broken fellowship to restored fellowship, just like that. Not because we're anything special, but because he is something special. That's the key. You and I are recipients of an amazing gift that's offered to us, not because we're special people, we're all just sinners saved by the grace of God if, we're no, if we know the Lord. But it's an opportunity that God offers to the whole world. The God Bible says it's a gift. The gift of God is eternal life. It's a gift that's offered with love. It's a gift that's offered with no strings attached. It's a gift that says, you know what? Because I love you, I offer this to you. When Jesus is on the cross and he's held there not by the nails, he's held there by love. He looks out. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He looks at a lost world that hates him, which that could be us many times in our lives. There's been times before I was saved, man, I took the Lord's name in vain on a regular basis. I cursed his name. I didn't believe in him. I didn't trust in him. I lived in rebellion of him. But God was merciful. Merciful. And that love was extended to me. And it's extended to the world. And the people you see in the world, don't judge them for their sin. Because understand, a lost person's going to act like a lost person. They don't know any better. If you judged me beforehand, you'd go, you know what, that guy's worthless. You know what, God sees something in me. To God be the glory. And what's exciting about it is the fact that God is asking them to build. Is that not only is it going to be a mirror, a picture of the tabernacle in heaven, but guess what, it's also going to be a picture of him. As well. Verse number 10 says this, And they shall make an ark of shittim wood, two cubits and a half shall be the length of it thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. When it talks about an ark, it's not talking about a boat, it's talking about a vessel, like a shape, basically like a box, more or less, okay? Verse number 11, And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. So this, to understand, this is interesting because this is a picture of Christ. The wood is a picture of the humanity of Christ. And guess what the gold is? The gold is a picture of the deity of Christ. And the two coming together being man and God. Verse 12. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be on the one side of it, and two rings on the other side. The rings, guess what they represent? They represent eternity. When we do a wedding, we talk about the eternity of the ring. It's a picture of that eternal vow. And it's a picture of eternity through that in the golden rings. And then it also talks about there on the four corners. Because God is the Lord over the east, the south, the north, and the west. That was a completely wrong way to do that. How do you normally do it? <laughs> north. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to miss one because I'm out of order. Whatever it is, north, south, east, and west. That's the way you normally do it. I don't know where I went there. It doesn't matter. But we got them all. It's all that matters. But the whole point is, he rules over it all, right? <laughs> then we look here. Verse number 13, and it says, And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, and, that, and the ark may be born with them. It's saying, look, if that thing's going to be carried, it's going to be carried by, this, by the staves. It's not going to be carried any other way. I have an image I want to show you. This is kind of a, a representation of what it would look like. So we can see here the staves 
We can see here the, the main part of the ark, and that right here, we're going to get to that in a minute. That's the mercy seat, which is the lid of the, of the ark. So what happens, in fact, is no human hands are ever supposed to touch it, and there's only one instance in the Bible anywhere anybody ever touches it, okay? And this is what's going to happen here in 2 Samuel 6. Is, um, this, the background story on this is the fact that there's been a lot of battles going, taking place with the Philistines, and what happens, the Philistines actually take the ark away from the people of God. And what happens, because they're like, whoa, whoa, we can't afford to have this thing. This thing's dangerous. They give it back. It ends up going to a guy named Abinadab. He stores it in his home for a while, and then his sons, and they, they decide to bring it back to, to David at Jerusalem. And so David's all excited, and they load it onto a cart being pulled by an ox, and they start taking it back into the city. So here they come, and David's there, and they're all celebrating. Here comes the ark. Woo! Everybody's cheering, right? Here he has this. And when they came to Nachon's threshing floor, Nachon was just someone's house that's along the way. They got to his house. It says Uzzah, this is one of the sons, put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. So it was about to fall off. It was, it was shaking on the thing. He just reaches up to support it. Okay? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him with therefore his error, and there he died by the ark. Well, the party went, Whoo! They went, whoa, wow, you see that? <laughs> Holy moly. Guess what? It was only supposed to be carried by the staves. It wasn't designed to be carried on an ox. It was supposed to be carried by the Levites. It was supposed to be carried by the priests. And so that happens is God, this reverence for the ark is no joke with God. Verse 15, and it says, The staves shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. Okay? God instructs him. He says, look, you're going to take the testimony. You're going to take the truth. And you're going to put that inside of the ark. So the ark is supposed to be filled with the truth. There's going to be nothing else at this point in time. Later on, some other stuff will be added. But right now, there's just the truth inside. Okay? John 1.14 says this, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the only, as the, as the only of the begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Ephesians 4.21 says this, If so, be that ye have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. The ark would hold nothing but the truth, and it would be the source of truth, a picture of Jesus. Verse 17, we now move to the mercy seat, which is the top. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Notice the other parts are all made out of wood and have been covered with gold. This part right here, this is solid gold. There's nothing else involved. It's all gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold. Cherubims are, are earthly. They're not, they're, they, in the world, in the Bible, Angels don't have wings. They don't look at what you see when someone has wings is always a male cherubim is what you're going to see in the Bible. But when you see angels in the, in the world and the way they, they depict them, the Bible always depicts an angel as a man, and it looks just like a man. He doesn't have wings. So these cherubims are, are these heavenly beings. And he says, And make one cherub on the one end and the other on the other end. And in the end of the or mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimonies that I shall give thee. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens here in Romans 3, verses 24 and 25. There's a, there's a word there. It's called propitiation. Okay? When you see that word propitiation, it's actually translated Mercy seat, okay? I want you to look at it here in the verse. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth, talking about Jesus, to be a propitiation. You could plug in the word mercy seat right there. It says, through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. 
1 John 2, verses 1 and 2 says this, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye, not, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, ye have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Can we see through this picture of Christ, this picture through the ark and the mercy seat, the God's plan for redemption it was always the same. We're back here in the wilderness with Moses up on the mountain Sinai. They're just out there, just six weeks out of Egypt. And here we can see the picture of Jesus being shown to us in the ark, way back, in the, way back here. And the law was given to reveal the need, of sin, the need of a Savior. It showed them, right? When we look into the Word of God, the Bible calls it the, first, the perfect law of liberty. When I look into the Word of God, what it does is it reveals my sin, right? I'm not supposed to live by the law because I can't. No one can. The Bible says, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Every human being is flawed, flawed and failed. So we can't live perfect. But what we do is we look into the word. It gives us direction. But bottom line is this reflects back to me where I'm failing. Thou shalt not lie. Dang, blew that one. Thou shalt not steal. Blew that one. Thou shalt have no, no, no other gods before me. Guess what? Blew that one. Because guess what? We all have idols in our lives. We struggle with this stuff as human beings. We struggle with things that we put over God all the time. And many times... It's us. So, as we see this picture here in the wilderness, then that, that, that fact that the, the blood sacrifice, right, the remission of sins, what's supposed to be done, and what we're going to see is the mercy seat. That's where the blood's going to be poured. First pictured in the blood of bullocks, right, and goats and lambs. But then it's going to be finally realized in the sinless blood of Christ. Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12 says this, But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, it's talking about the one in heaven, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. It says once, because guess what? With the high priest, they had to go in again and again and again. They had to go in and make these sacrifices of animals. It was only for a temporary time. But God came once and for all and paid the entire price for all of humanity throughout all of time with sinless blood. Jesus became our high priest and paid the sin debt with himself. And why would he do that? Verse 22. And there I will meet with thee, talking about the tabernacle, and I will commune. I will speak personally to you. I will connect with you. I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel to restore the fellowship. That's what this is all about. God created us for this perfect fellowship, and because of sin, it was destroyed. And God's been working to draw us back. God is again telling us that he wants to meet with us, as he did in Genesis 3.8 in the cool of the day as he walked with Adam. He not only wants to meet with us, but it says he wants to commune with us. Commune with us. Commune is to sit and, and intimately connect and to share and to feel love and connection. You commune with your spouse, man. Honey, let's go. I don't know, you may not use that wording much. Let's, honey, let's go commune, right? My wife and I, you know what, sometimes we'll just, we'll just lay in bed and we'll just lay there and hold hands and we'll just talk to the Lord. We're communing, man. We're connecting. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And you know what? God has created us that type a relationship with him and we treat him superficially 
Let me treat him like a friend. Hey, buddy, good to see you. Hook me up today, would you? I got a need, I got a problem. Would you carry it for me? Hey, genie in the bottle, could you just handle my stuff? I'm feeling a little pressure today. Would you lift it off me? Hey, would you take care of me? Me, 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 me. And the thing is, God's created us for so much more than that. He's created us for this, for this love relationship to where we connect with Him and He dwells with us and we commune with Him. That's His desire for humanity is that we be connected to Him. And sin is our problem. And after we're saved, guess what? We still struggle with the issues of sin because we're filled with selfishness. And that's why it says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. He says, mortify your flesh that you might walk with Him. And the only way we can do it is to kill this flesh. We've got to be able to set it aside and live for Him. God wants to meet with us, to commune with us. Exodus 29, verses 42 through 46, talking a little further about the tabernacle. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak there unto thee. And there I will meet with the children of Israel. And the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. He says, look, if they'll just recognize who I am, they don't have to have this struggle. They don't have to have this, these issues that they're fighting with all the time. And he's talking to us. Every day, the devil's trying to draw us away from God. There's distractions and all these things in our lives that pull us away from him. Our loving God wants to walk with us. He wants to talk with us. He wants to be with us. That's his desire for humanity. It's his desire for us individually. In spite of who we are, in spite of what we've done, in spite of who we've hurt, in spite of when we have consciously and unconsciously lived in rebellion to God, there have been times in our lives when we knew we were against God and we consciously made a choice to stand in opposition to Him. Every one of us has done that at some point in time. It may have been this morning. It might even be right now. God's calling you something, right? Because so many times we don't want to give up our will to God's. And that struggle is a hard place to be. When God's putting a weight on your shoulders and you deny it, guess what? It becomes a heavier and heavier and heavier weight. And this beautiful thing in the world, what we think is the very thing that's going to take away our freedom which is submitting to God, is the gateway to freedom. And what we believe is freedom, which is to carry our will and do things our way, right. is bondage. Yes. And the devil lies to us and tells us it's the reverse. But I'm telling you, when you submit yourself to God and you just give it up, and you say, Lord, not my will, but thine be done, this freedom and peace rolls over you like you cannot believe. Yeah. It is amazing. Because suddenly the weight of the world is no longer upon your shoulders. He says, cast your care upon me, for I careth for you. Man, just give it to me. Let me lead your life. And you don't have to carry all that stuff anymore. Revelations 1.5 says this, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And it will be that love that will put him on the cross. It'll be that love. And this, two pieces of wood, God makes a bridge to heaven. How beautiful is that? But only through his death could it take place in his resurrection. You see, God's already done all the work. He's restored our relationship with him. 
He's done it, right? He's already prepared the way. He's done all the work. He's made everything, right? The whole goal is the thing is, are we going to walk in fellowship with God? Or are we going to live in rebellion to God? In the end, it's up to us. It's not up to God. He's already made the way. He's paved the road. The problem is we choose not to follow it. Are we looking for ways that we can give back to God in thanks? Are we caught up in ourselves complaining of what we don't have and what we want? You see, God loves us, and he's already given us so much. I mean, he has more than abundantly provided for us. You're here today. God has provided for you. He's given you the word of God in your own language. He's given you a place that you can come hear the truth of the word. He's given you family. He's given you friends. He's given people you can interact with. He's given you food to eat, clothing to wear. When we go to Africa, man, you're, when those of you that go, when you go with us, you're going to meet people that have hardly any clothing to wear. The clothing they wear is so worn out, it is literally shreds hanging off of them. Or some of them will sit naked on the ground. They have nothing, but they're a lot happier than most of us. They have joy in their hearts. They're not caught up with the distractions of this world. His blood has already been poured out upon the mercy seat. The price has already been paid. The sacrifice has already been made. A righteous, contented life awaits us all. <laughs> and guess what? It's through the blood of Christ. It's through that blood. The question is, and then we need to ask ourselves, the questions we need to ask ourselves are these. Are we apply, has that blood been applied to our sin? Are we born again? Have we received Christ as our Savior and that blood applied to our sin debt that it might be paid? And if it has been, are we living in forgiveness? Are we living the joyous life of victory that God has for us? Many people live in bondage to their past. They have been saved. They've been restored by God. And they remember where they came from and they can't let it go. Or they remember the pains of the past and they cannot let them go. And they wear them like a badge of courage and they carry it through life and it weighs them down and they never feel the victory that God's given. He says, look, I've already restored you. I'll carry your, I'll carry your burdens for you. I'll be there for you. I'll restore you. I'll do something great in your life. Let me work. And we choose to carry the weight of these things. God says, look, give it up. Don't let the past define you. Define yourself based upon who you are in Christ. I have paid the price for your sin debt and you are no longer guilty. I have lifted it off of you. And as the devil, the Bible calls him the accuser, as he's in heaven accusing and saying, look, look at them. Do you see what they're doing? How can that be one of yours? And the father listens as the judge. Guess who steps up? Our advocate, our mediator, our attorney in heaven is Jesus Christ. And he walks up and he says, you know what? God, I got that one. I already paid for it. They're, they're not guilty. I paid for that. We don't deserve that. But that's what God offers us. Are we servants of God or servants of self? As children of God, it's time we embrace the freedom from sin and the life of contentment that we have in Christ. For you see, just like it was in the beginning, he wants to tabernacle with us. He wants to dwell with us. And guess where the tabernacle is today? Guess where the temple is today? The Bible says that we are the temple. The Spirit of God, as a believer, lives in us. And we can have fellowship with Him anytime we choose. And the only time fellowship's ever broken is that we put sin between us and God. And as we talked about last week, we talked about the picture of the sun and the moon. And in creation, God created these images for us. The sun, Jesus is the light of the world. And he shines into the world. And then when it's night on this earth, there's another light. And it's the moon. 
The moon's a dead rock, but the light of that sun reflects off of that moon and shines into the darkness of this world, and people can walk in light. Not because the moon has light, but because it reflects it. The Bible says in the book of Philippians, you and I are supposed to be as lights. We're a picture of it. But what happens when the world gets between the sun and the moon? The light diminishes. And if the world gets dead center right in between us and God, there is an eclipse. And the earth is in absolute darkness. When there's a reflecting image, I should be a reflection. And here I am supposed to reflect because the world is in between me and it. I cannot give any light at all. We have no light of our own. But what happens when you let the world get in between you? It blocks out the sun. Not the S-U-N, the S-O-N. The Bible says we're supposed to shine our light. So just like then, God wanted tabernacles. And for us, he wants us to understand the extent of his love and the depth of his forgiveness that he's been displaying to us for all of our lives. We can go back in the Bible all the way to the book of Genesis. In every book, we can see pictures of Jesus again and again and again. And here in the ark, we see it. It's a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of him. You see, in the moment when our eyes are really opened and we can really see God's love for us and we can really see his forgiveness, when your eyes are really open, the picture of Jesus becomes so clear. It's no longer masked behind confusion or fear or doubt. When you trust Christ and you give him your heart and you let go of the things of this world, all of a sudden this veil just falls away and you see this picture of your Savior who says, I've been waiting on you. And by the way, when I created you, I knew this day was going to come. And I've been waiting, long-suffering, caring for you, seeing you not for who you were in your sin, but who you would become. It's a beautiful thing. God does not love us for who we are. He loves us for who we will become. He sees the potential in us, and he loves us in spite of ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for today and the beautiful image of Christ that we see in the ark, God. We thank you so much for the mercy seat, the blood that's been poured out for the sins of the world. And Lord, I pray right now for all of us that, God, we would be thankful, helpful us to be cheerful givers, Lord, that we return and give back to you, Father, that we might have that fellowship with you. God, you want to tabernacle with us. You want to dwell with us. Thank you for the opportunity and for your love for this world. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, you know, Pastor, I don't know that I have that, that tabernacle experience. I don't know that I have a relationship with God. I believe in God. Guys, I was not raised in church. I didn't go to church as a kid. But you know what? 34 years old, somebody shared the truth of who Christ was, and I received him as my Savior. That's been 18 years ago, and God's done an amazing work in my life. But it was nothing more than me surrendering my will to his. And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed today and nobody looking around, God loves you exactly as you are. And he died on the cross to pay the price for your sins, to create a gateway for you through his forgiveness to come into his family. And by faith is all he asks. It's that by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's by faith. 
It's not a magic prayer. It's not the words of the prayer. It's not a ceremony. It's all those things are irrelevant. It's the heart. Just like the heart of a giver, God's looking for the heart of someone who wants to receive him as his Savior. If your heart wants to receive him, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. If you're in the overflow room, if you're online, wherever you are, you're watching this recorded. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. This is an opportunity for you to talk to God. It doesn't take me. It's you and him. But let me tell you, he's done all the work. Everything is prepared. The gateway is open. It's just a matter of you being willing to walk through it by faith. And as he calls to your heart right now, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray in your heart. You don't have to pray out loud. I'm going to lead you in prayer, but it is not the words. It's the intention of your heart that God is listening to. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ, pray this in your heart and mind to receive him. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that I have failed you. And I failed myself. I ask you right now, by faith, to forgive me of my sins. I ask you to pay the price for my sin debt that would take me to hell. I ask you to love me. And I ask you, God, to forgive me. Lord, please come into my heart. By faith, I'm asking you to save me. Save me from my sin. Save me from eternity separated from you, that I may be your child. God, thank you for working in my heart today. Thank you for saving me. I will see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.